expected to just fill in the blanks for this week, because as you'll see, there are a lot of things that I wanted to include on there, um, because we're covering like 1,500 years or something like that (laughs) of information. And so I tried to distill as much as I can um, the contributions of these individuals uh, all toward um, a a different uh, engagement with uh, scripture and tradition during the medieval period. And so I'll move quickly through a couple of these um, and hunker down on a few uh, as we go um, to look here. But um, the medieval period is an interesting time in church history. Uh, I think we as Protestants uh, tend to focus more on the Reformation, um, which is good uh, to do. Um, But many of the things that were going on and changing and how guys are interacting with each other, um, we see the the first fruits of some of the principles um, that would come to fruition in the Reformation. And so I want to walk us through a little bit of that uh, today. So, like, as we're transitioning from the Patristic Age, the early church fathers were looking towards the medieval period, um, where Christianity is becoming the dominant culture in uh, within Europe and the Western world. Um, but it's during this time that, uh, well, well, we'll see that um, in almost continuity to the Patristic era, uh, the Middle Ages have a general agreement on uh, Scripture and tradition and their interrelationship. So there's a bit of carryover here um, because I think it just naturally follows. They are the most immediate uh, beneficiaries of the early church father's legacy and can begin to build on the literature that they left behind. Um, But uh, there are two major figures uh, in, uh, from the Latin tradition that we're going to start with, whose influence greatly shaped the early medieval period, and that's Jerome and Augustine. So firstly, uh, Jerome's translation, uh, which became to be known as the Vulgate, sometimes they were just for, refer to it as the Latin Vulgate, um, became the established biblical text for most of the medieval uh, West. Um, and that's particularly true... Um, around the 5th century up into Charlemagne's demand in the 8th century for a, like better practices in Bible transmission. So it was a very, very influential piece of literature at the time. So uh, I think it's the first full uh, statement of the scriptures into Latin at the time. Um, but what was most uh, influential beyond just the uh, primacy of this text is that uh, through Jerome's impact and his commitment to uh, biblical languages, especially that of Hebrew, um, that with his exegetical commentaries really started shifting the monasteries, the, mon- uh, the monastic communities of the time, away from this kind of um, aesthetic refuges that we might think of when we think of monasteries, toward more uh, Bible reading, intensive Bible reading, intensive Bible study, and the preservation and reproduction of scriptural texts. So you can even begin to see some of these uh, first fruits at the Bible Museum as you go. You can see some of the most 
beautiful uh, examples, artful uh, uh, reproductions of scriptural texts beginning here in uh, the monasteries there. But so Jerome and then Augustine, right? So uh, he is likewise as influential. um, And what we see here is that I think his largest contribution is that he shaped much of the period's view and approach to Scripture. Um, In his classical work, uh, which I'll just refer to by the English, On Christian Teaching, uh, we have his uh, very significant bit of information here where he has a theory of what he calls signification. So he says the Bible as a text is a text of signs, that's the, the language he uses, that point, pointing to things, signs pointing to things. And uh, from this, he puts forward seven mystical rules. Uh, that sounds a little woo-woo to us now, probably. Uh, for discerning the hidden meaning in Scripture from the 4th century um, Donatus Tyconius, right? But uh, the, two, the primary uh, two points from on Christian teaching um, that came through were what are now the well-known commitments of the medieval period to the division of Scripture into the letter and the spirit. So certainly we probably heard the phrase to the, to the spirit of the law, not to the letter. That's the origin of some of this here, this understanding of things can have multiple layers of meaning. That's what he's trying to get at when he's describing the hidden meanings of Scripture. Um, Building on that, we have John Cassian, who uh, uses what has been called the multiple sense approach. It's an even further uh, establishment beyond uh, into the multiple meanings of Scripture here. And he separated uh, theoretical knowledge of Scripture into what is often called the quadriga or, or a fourfold method. So we'll have literal, uh, which they mean historical, allegorical, so spiritual, theological, tropological, moral, and anagogical, which is the eschatological. Um, these senses that they're keeping in mind are uh, interpretive possibilities for scriptures, and they're trying to keep those in mind. Moving along, we have Bede. These names are, yeah, getting into them is interesting. But uh, so this guy was, uh, like many of these folks, uh, he was actually a monk um, working uh, in Northumbria at the time. And his primary contribution was through his commentaries and his great work called uh, Ecclesiastical History. Um, He wrote, what's interesting about him is not many folks at the time were writing commentaries of books that were not already uh, dealt with by the early church fathers. So he uh, had great reverence for the uh, early church fathers, um, but he also was brave, brave enough and bold enough to venture into writing his own commentaries on some works they had not dealt with before. But what's most interesting is that uh, when he did so, his approach to scriptural interpretation uh, continued the fourfold method um, where, uh, where he thought applicable. Um, he employed this um, with a, I would say, a pastor's heart, <laughs> 
because uh, his intention was uh, he wanted to guide the layperson to a clear understanding and application of the biblical text. And so he employed these methodologies in writing his commentaries. Um, so he thought highly of the fathers, thought highly of the place of teachers in Scripture, and because of that, he wanted to make it uh, more common to the common man. So uh, briefly before we jump into um, the high Middle Ages, uh, in 1789, just a little bit more history, uh, Charlemagne uh, issued his Admonito Generalis, I think I could pronounce it enough, which led to a creation of a new uh, monastic and cathedral schools. So uh, where the emphasis was going to be on preservation and production and the study of Scripture, um, and, uh, well, I guess they, they would do it with all sacred literature, they would describe it as, but with the scriptures being primary. Um, and it's during this time that we first see the standardization of Jerome's Vulgate, um, during the period. And, uh, later, uh, we would see through his efforts, he would come to establish what he would call a corrected text, um, through guys like this guy named Theodolf of Orléans, a bishop of Orléans, France, who he labored to um, arrive at a Bible that contained what he described as the Hebraic Veritas, uh, which in Jerome's notes would mean Hebrew truth. So in an effort to produce a more corrected text, what they did was went uh, involved a greater emphasis on uh the interpretation of the Hebrew um, to arrive at this at this text. So as we're seeing through these guys, we have a standardization of text, so a number of folks can be dealing with the same material. We're having uh, interpretive principles beginning to show forth and some being built upon and expanded upon, as well as a greater love and focus on an accurate and uh, strong uh, manuscript tradition. That's what we're looking at coming into the, the middle section here. So then uh, to the high Middle Ages, um, we have uh, Lefranc, who, um, uh, he'll, his will be brief. I'll just deal with that. Uh, I find it interesting, but this is what he was doing. He decided to take all of Paul's work and say, let me try to to analyze what Paul's rhetoric is. What is Paul arguing for in his writings? And this is an application of like an analytical tool to better understand the scriptures, always trying to arrive at what is the author trying to say. Uh, similarly, you have Bruno of Cologne, um, who uh, authored commentaries on the Psalter, also on Paul's epistles and Hebrews. Um, and he was applying other tools of uh, the liberal arts, um, looking for uh, grammatical things, literary devices, rhetorical information, all in the, interpreta- in the interpretation of Scripture. Um, but both of these men, both uh, Lefranc and Bruno, they were employing these in hopes to better engage the biblical text and discern authorial intent. So authorial intention. Um, then we have uh, Rupert of Duets, um, yet another monk. 
laboring long on scriptures, trying to discern their meaning. But um, what he did is almost a systematic approach with one topic uh, that we'll highlight at least, that he sought to understand God's triune uh, nature through an examination um, of his creative and redemptive acts. So now we're employing like a singular category. Let's see what the scriptures say about this one thing and see what we have here. He additionally would have a special focus in this uh, study on God the Son and the mystery of Christ as revealed in the Old Testament. So really scouring the Old Testament, looking for uh, signs of Christ in the Old Testament. Um, uh, we'll cover these guys a bit more in the future, but as we get here to uh, what I call later the Victorines, is uh, possibly the most influential place in the medieval period uh, for biblical interpretation. So we have um, the study of the Bible at this school of St. Victor. Um, uh, it was an abbey and it became well-known for uh, biblical history and studies. And um, they embraced pretty strongly uh, Augustine's kind of vision uh, for as a starting point. So on Christian teaching would definitely be required reading uh, if you went to the school. But first we have Hugh of St. Victor. So in, in his work, uh, I'm not going to venture to say that, um, he, he took uh, the signification theory of Augustine and was allowing for multiple senses, but he wanted to tether whatever interpretations um, that were um, the, the previous to, my brain is mush a little bit, pardon me, um, he wanted to tether any allegorical or uh, anagog- anagogical interpretations to the literal uh, translation. So he wanted to have in place basically a, a methodology that he felt he could um, root, that he could have a foundation for. So his emphasis was um, that he would give priority over uh, to the literal historical meaning as ground, a uh, groundwork for which all the other senses would be understood. So um, when I first was uh, studying this stuff in college, I found it a little uh, bewildering, some of the interpretations that we find in, uh, from some medieval guys who were heavy allegorical. Um, and I think it's because I'd been aware of this and found it be more favorable and uh, I think it's a wise decision, at minimum, <laughs> to start with literal historical. Yes. So you get a little bit of going back to the languages. You'll get it way more in Reformation. So, like as the as history progresses, and we're able to, it's it's. Uh, Interesting fact, but it's true. Reformation almost exactly coincides with the printing press stuff. And so second, they get access to greater languages, more manuscripts. They're sending the stuff everywhere. But yeah, so that first standardization of the Vulgate, they would be primarily using the Latin, Jerome's uh, work there. Well, for whatever reason, Latin was the academic language at the time. Um, 
So it was the dominant language for the arts, so they just maintained that. Um, and coincidentally, that's why many of high liturgies involve heavy Latin, because they're drawing from sources around that same time period. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, thank you, Jim. Uh, continuing through uh, the Victorines, we have student of Hugh, Andrew, um, who continued to have the literal sense be primary in his exegetical work, but he even more so in an attempt, I think, to get to, if he had the Hebrew fully, he would have been soaking it up. He started drawing from Jewish sources to approach the Old Testament. So he's like, they have a greater understanding of Hebrew language. They have a greater understanding of Hebrew custom. I can draw some um, meaningful information from them to help establish a better, clearer, literal sense of whatever text I'm looking at to then undergird any of the other senses that I derive. Um, in contrast, you have a, another student um, of Hugh who takes uh, another route, um, Richard. Um, he tend to pr- practice a more experiential reading of Scripture, and he preferred much more the allegorical and tropological senses, um, always looking for these these hidden meanings um, with a... a slight de-emphasis on the the letter, more of the spirit, if you want to do it that way. Um, But through this time period, the 11th and 12th centuries, while this is happening, um, we have a significant number of contributions um, to the scriptures. And uh, one of those would be the um, kind of the initiation of the glosses, um, so we're going to get there for a moment. So um, there is a, a notable achievement that occurred um, known as the Glossa Ordinaria, um, which basically just means glosses or um, for the common man. Basically, it's like one of the earliest versions of uh, notes in your Bible. So they're like, hey, we have margins. Let's put comments in there. Um, let's put insight, anything that we have. Um, and so they started going pretty crazy with this. Any space, let's write stuff in it. Um, this is not quite the same time period, but I do find it interesting. If you go to the Bible Museum, one of my favorite things to see there is uh, people will do this even on their own to this day. But Martin Luther's pastor's Bible is there. And it's very small. It's not, not a big thing. And it has very little margins, these little spaces. And he's written all over them, all over the place. <laughs> They could not get enough. Uh, if they could have maximum amount of paper, I imagine that they would just mark everything if they could. Um, but yeah, so in addition to uh, Scripture, um, uh, having a a common Scripture they're referring to, having uh, commentaries being written, having uh, interpretive um, methodologies forming and building on one each other, one another and diverging a little bit, we also have um, these glosses beginning to appear in these copies of the texts um, serving as commentary in and of themselves in addition to the dedicated uh, commentaries. And um, that brings us to Anselm, uh, who is essentially uh, the source and director of the glossa. So if, for some scholars, 
His involvement um, is a little obscure. They believe that it's him for the most part. Um, however, uh, he's still attributed to being the guy who got that going. Um, and uh, they, he and the, I assume the folks he was working with, they labored pretty hard to gloss the entire Bible. So they have comments over the entirety of the scriptures. They're going out in copies during the time. Um, but naturally, that has its benefits and uh, its negatives, um, pros and cons. And so guys like Peter uh, here um, sought to do bring other information that might um, bolster this, so the way it's described. Um, so the second bit here is uh, in Peter uh, Comester's uh, History Scholastica, Oh, this is Latin, man. It's been ages. Um, he provided a biblical chronology and history uh, um, where uh, he wanted the central importance to be a proper reading interpretation of the Holy Scriptures. And what we have here is that um, people found that through the all the glosses, you'd be pro- providing basically all four potential interpretations of a passage. So let's think if we're saying, it'd be like dealing with a theological position, like survey um, for like every verse of scripture almost, uh, where it'd be like, all right, I read this verse. What does it mean? Well, here's four options that uh, guys who are more engaged with this think it, it could equally be. I assume, because they've written them all. Well, what are we to make of this now? Uh, is, there a, is there a way for us to um, have a better understanding of which one may be more plausible at the time? And a, one small attempt at that would be trying to tether uh, these interpretations to the, chron- the chronology of the Bible, what they'll later call the history, um, the historical sequence of Scripture. So... Um, while aiming to explain the scriptures' historical uh, information and getting closer to the literal sense, that is a way in which they are trying to um, keep the glossa from obscuring the storyline of the Bible because there's so much written in there and tethering it to the historical sequence of scripture to make it more understandable. So we have... uh, the Historia Scholastica there to try to narrow the attention um, directly to Scripture's literal meaning um, while maintaining some knowledge of potential uh, other meanings, um, trying to root them within literal meaning. So you'll keep seeing this come up and again is guys will encounter a problem um, or try to interpret the Scriptures in, in meaningful ways but also multiple ways, they, there's always a resurgence of, well, how can this be tethered to the literal meaning? How can this be tethered to the literal meaning? How can this be propped up by the historical information of Scripture itself? Um, and that is uh, the beginnings of, of that there. So then to another big name that you may have heard, Thomas Aquinas. So in... Um, the second half of the 13th century, uh, Thomas Aquinas 
definitely left his mark on Christian history with his uh, famous uh, Summa Theologica, one of the most famous works in Christian history. Um, in addition to that, he has multiple commentaries on many books. Um, but the the biggest thing to me, uh, besides his literary contributions, um, is he endeavored to make a methodological contribution. So he is engaged in um, focused reflection on the relationship between uh, scriptural interpretation and theological argument. And so he's, um, this, was, this would grant further authoritative priority to the literal sense in Scripture, um, all in uh, harmony, I guess, in line with uh, the Victorine gentleman uh, that we just discussed. So in, um, in some of his writings, like, uh, I don't know how to say that, <laughs> quod libetal questions, um, he says, he states basically that all spiritual senses, meaning allegorical or otherwise, um, should be authorized by the biblical text's literal sense. Um, all with the purpose of safeguarding the singular witness or meaning of Scripture's unified message. So, um, more simply, it would be in this sense, the literal sense governs all matters of Christian faith um, propagated by a spiritual sense. So it's always trying to just tether, getting back to what does the text say, what is the authorial intent of the text, and any broader interpretations that come from that should have uh, a meaningful connection to that material. Um, I'll take a break real quick. Any questions right now before we keep trucking along? Because examples of like the allegorical sense. And when, do you think Aquinas here is allegorical or otherwise he's lumping in the other three of the four? I would imagine so. I don't know for sure. Um, for allegorical, for instance, it would be something like, uh, I forget who it is now, but, uh, uh, there was some guy who basically said the song of songs is a hymn written to the Virgin Mary. I don't see that. <laughs> uh, that's not uh, immediately, um, seen by my eyes, um, but I do understand how someone might could arrive at something like that. So that would be a small, odd example of an allegorical interpretation of that. Um, more, there's a, um, let me see if I have one of my notes here that's beyond that or has more information on that. I'm trying to recall. Um, you think so, like, uh, the, in the allegorical parentheses on the idea of spiritual, theological so would that be like um, reading Christ into Old Testament texts? Some would, some were arguing that the way in which they are describing it would preclude that, um, but they don't see that's the case. So what we'll get to in a bit is the broadening of the literal sense. So we'll get there in a moment. So the first ex, the first iteration of it, it would seem that's the case. But as we see, we deal with more information, especially Christological passages. 
uh, what we start to see is a broadening of the meaning. Um, so let's hold it for a bit, and we'll come back to it pretty soon. Um, so let's keep going because this will this will happen. Okay, so getting into the late Middle Ages, uh, about the 14th century now. If you're tracking along, uh, I have virtually no conception of time with these guys. It's so obscure to me. But um, we have uh, Nicholas of Lyra, who is a Bible commentator as well. Um, Franciscan guy. Uh, you'll hear more about the Franciscans later, but. Uh, What's interesting to him was yet another example to me of a guy who is looking for a greater understanding of the literal meaning and is trying to appeal to Hebraic uh, knowledge. So this, this guy um, trying to do his due diligence to best discern the literal sense um, of, the, uh, yeah, of the text, uh, he, drew, uh, he drew heavily from rabbinic exegesis of the old testament specifically a rabbi that was a couple years a couple hundred years uh, previous to him um, who was also french (laughs) Um, but leaning on uh, a heavy heavy hebraic tradition to deal with hebrew texts and their exegesis consulting them to see how clearly he could get to a uh, the clearest sense of the text um, and moving on to uh, England yet again, we have John Wycliffe. So there are many, many examples of Wycliffe Bibles at the Bible Museum, and they're very neat to look at because um, they're in Middle English, and it's like 75% gibberish to our eyes. Like you'll look at it and you're like, oh, yeah, I know what that word means. I don't spell it like that, but I know what that word means. And then the rest of it is like utter nonsense. And uh, the the fun thing about English at that time to me is it was like the Wild West because like they're just making up everything as they went along. And I, I can't remember how many it is, but John Wycliffe spelled his name like 30 different ways or something like that uh, in official writings from himself. <laughs> he couldn't decide how many F's and E's and Y's he wanted to put in his name. But he was like, hey, we're making it up, so why not roll the dice and see which one sticks? But, um, yeah, (laughs) neat guy still. But uh, during this time, uh, he was trying, he became an, he was advocating for, um, in lieu of some of the competing voices, advocating to give primacy still to the biblical text's literal meaning. So uh, he penned a work. Uh, on the truth of Holy Scripture to counter the notions at the time that the literal meaning of the text was uh, illogical. Uh, There were people that day saying the Scriptures are uh, incoherent in their literal meaning, and therefore that should be abandoned. And he was not of that mind and wrote a great work to defend his position on that. Um, But in addition to that, uh, he arrived at, uh, if I in some, that Scripture itself should be consulted to interpret Scripture. And this was in response to folks uh, appealing with greater weight, giving greater authority to extra-biblical traditions or literature of the church fathers over against the Scriptures. So the, we've heard, like, let the Bible interpret itself 
which is true in a sense. Um, but uh, the, position, the, the exact context from which he says this is, let the Bible interpret itself in greater authority than voices outside of itself. Um, that's uh, the, the bit there I want to get to. So now we're getting closer with, uh, with Gene Gerson here, um, following, um, who is an opponent of uh, the reform that Wycliffe and others uh, launched. Um, so in opposition here, he um, recognized that interpretations of the literal meaning of a biblical text in theological argumentation need some kind of authoritative means uh, to determine tr- the truth of them. However, he chose the opposite of what Wycliffe would ultimately. He reasoned o- toward that. So in his uh, treatise on the literal interpretation of sacred scripture and the causes of error, uh, you guys are not very brief, um, he advocated for a rhetorical approach um, in, a sim- in a similar way that Augustine's on Christian teaching uh, would, uh, where the literal sense is not equated with the letter of the scriptural text. Um, so he's arguing that since the words can signify, using back that phrase, can signify things beyond the mere letter of the human author um, as the true intention uh, of the divine author, um, he arrived that uh, proper literal meaning of Scripture, in contrast to Wycliffe, um, uh, can be put forward. Uh, that a, yeah, let me make sure I can get this clear. That the literal meaning of a text could be beyond the literal meaning of the text, which I would agree with, generally speaking. However, uh, what this leads to, I absolutely would not agree with. So hopefully we'll get there in a minute. But uh, what we'll see is um, uh, Gerson would then put forward the church's tradition as an interpretive norm to resolve disputes over any variant renderings of biblical texts, uh, any biblical text's literal sense. So he would then cite things outside of the scriptures to resolve any of these issues. And what happens is, as we continue through this, is this methodological uh, or this methodology basically served and raised tradition as a source, as inspired, or even in some cases more inspired, more authoritative, more weighty than Holy Scripture itself. That's certainly our uh, view on the matter. Um, in terms of, that's our view of what happened. Uh, so we can get into this a little bit, and we'll get back to the Victorines a little bit with the case studies, okay? Um, so now we're trying to discern what is the literal sense of the Scriptures. We're trying to arrive at what is the authorial intention, and where is the source of authority. And so uh, the question of method uh, increasingly received treatment from the interpreters and theologians trying to clarify these questions, uh, like what is biblical and ecclesiastical uh, authority? 
So back to the guys from St. Victor, right? Um, just a quick review. We have Hugh, who played a significant role in like reinvigorating the literal sense uh, as being primary. So instead of treating the letter of the biblical text as simply an entryway into a deeper spiritual meaning, uh, he desired to ground any allegorization in the historicity of Scripture's record. And so in his work on sacred Scripture and its authors, um, he submitted that one should not make claims to knowing Scripture if he does not know the letter. So at the beginning, that's the bottom. Literal meaning uh, in his estimation is identified with biblical history. It is the facts in evidence, uh, which is also the authoritative interpretation of world history. Um, And his efforts in this um, greatly influenced and uh, increased the interest in um, the Scripture as history and chronology in biblical interpretation. So again, his first student, Andrew, who is like-minded, continued to promote a literal historical sense and did so by learning from Jewish, Jewish exegesis. And so the, the Jewish commentaries he believed um, ought to carry an authoritative weight of, uh, for the right interpretation of Old Testament texts, even if their authors did not bra- embrace Christian faith. And uh, this commitment often caused um, uh, Andrew to locate the literal sense of Old Testament passages with its immediate historical context and thereby produce um, a preclude some common Christian interpretations from assuming Christ as the direct referent. So this is back, this is the information I was getting around to with you, Jacob. So Andrew, this guy, takes it too far and leaves no room for any Christological readings in the Old Testament. Um which is a meaningful criticism for him to deal with. So this is the first instance of, that's a good principle, but it doesn't account for all the information we have. So what we'll begin to see is that um, the, uh, how did I write this? In the, I'm trying to remember. Um, yes, so uh, well, here we have... Um, let me see here. Uh, yeah, so the, they use the phrase uh, the mystery of Christ. Uh, he, he uses the phrase the mystery of Christ. He does assert that it might remain present within Old Testament texts, but um, it would have to be grasped in a spiritual sense, not literal meaning. So we still probably would not agree with that. So he's like Christ can only be there in a spiritual uh, allegorical sense. I think where that would fail then is anything that we would view as being a prophetic utterance that speaks directly of Christ. He is in the literal meaning of the text. Um, There's an example that we'll cover here in a moment um, where he and Richard, they're fighting each other. So let's look back at, let's continue looking forward to to Richard here. So um, fellow student with Andrew, uh, all under Q, um, he was quite unsettled by Andrew's preference uh, for the Jewish commentary 
over the Christian tradition reading of the Old Testament. Um, And uh, a notable instance, uh, this would be a a good spot to check this out. Uh, Richard uh, responded to Andrew in a treatise titled On Emmanuel concerning um, Andrew's decision to regard the literal sense of Isaiah 7.14. Um, I'm going to pull that just for a moment so we can read it. So Isaiah 7.14. So let's see how we would tend to take this. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. So that's well treaded in our our ears for sure around Christmas time. Um, Andrew, with his uh, proclivity towards the Hebraic uh, folks, he took that to to be a reference to the son of the prophet Isaiah, uh, the son of the prophet Isaiah's wife, rather than the birth of Jesus Christ, the incarnate one to the Virgin Mary. So uh, Richard upheld that the literal sense of Isaiah's prophecy was indeed the sign of the virgin birth um, with his a spiritual meaning. And so what, what we have here is, uh, once again, this literal meaning for Richard, that is, uh, should not be mistaken for the biblical text's spiritual sense. So um, to ascribe to the literal sense the immediate historical context instead of widening the scope to consist of all of God's history of salvation, um, that exposed, according to Richard, the absence of the Spirit's illuminating work on Christian readers. So here we have Richard saying, uh, maybe not giving too much weight to guys who don't have the Spirit of God in interpreting God's Word uh, if it's going to lead you to errors like this. That was his, his criticism of Andrew's uh, interpretation of that passage, which I would agree that Andrew's wrong. However, there's still some benefit <laughs> to to dealing with them. It's just you need to have uh, all the information hold them in tension. So that's a, a meaningful criticism here where we would probably not agree with where Richard takes his stuff eventually on other texts. Absolute agreement here that um, the spiritual sense provided the literal meaning of the text, though it was not to the letter um, in regard to the historical, uh, the version of historical literal meaning that Andrew arrived at. Um, Yeah. Is that clear as mud? Because that is, yeah. Like with that text specifically, I know a lot of commentators would say it was referring to Isaiah's son, but then also to a fuller sense referring to Christ. So yeah. Both so the literal meanings, sure. and the spiritual meaning. Which is absolutely yeah, as possible as well. Yeah. yeah. But I think that's a good example. Mm. Yes. So, um, yeah. Keep it on through. Uh, getting away from all the infighting at uh, the Victorines. So at Thomas Aquinas, um, here for a moment again. So what we have, um, 
with Thomas is um, he taught that the verbal signification um, of the letter of the biblical text, this is getting closer to that, to me, um, uh, could be extended. So the letter of the biblical text could be extended to consist not only of the historical referent, but also a figurative sense or biblical metaphor. So this is precisely where we're arriving at with this uh, Isaiah passage, um, where uh, the faith to be believed and matters of theological argument, they ought to rest on the revealed truth of God. Um, However, we still are considering the scriptures themselves as that revelation. Um, And uh, therefore... Um, the, yes, so basically the, the sufficiency and authority of the scriptures according to their literal sense where it should be tethered um, can still be derived uh, in these multiple senses when accounting for all things, um, all while trying to arrive at authorial intention. So uh, central to Aquinas' position was authorial intention, um, so the element of biblical interpretation um, that uh, experienced significant theoretical construction during this time uh, was authorial intention. So uh, the divine authorship of Scripture was always looming uh, in the study of the Bible at this point in history of interpretation um, with the literal sense undergoing renewal. Um, focus began to be redirected to the human author's meaning as the, the locale of the biblical text's literal sense. So we're thinking historical, grammatical, all of these kinds of things that we're more familiar with now. Um, these are beginning to be developed and, and played with, experimented with, all for the purpose of trying to discern authorial intent. So... Um, uh, again, in, again, to the broadening uh, bit of this information, uh, the assumption of uh, the literal meaning of a human author's intent could pertain uh, to the doctrinal content that's delivered through figurative or symbolic expression, um, and it could cause the spiritual theological sense for the divine author to be conveyed verbally through the grasp of the biblical author's meaning. So we could... Um, discern the God's authorial intent through the authorial intent of the human author. That's what we're trying to get at. And so um, by do, trying to arrive at this, we begin to try to analyze uh, biblical discourses and genre all as a means to arrive at the revealed knowledge of God. So it would be better understanding the literature that's being written um, by the human author as a means to understand the authorial intent of the divine author. This is the, the, the pathway that they're seeking to, uh, to walk through. Um, and so uh, you know, I want to cover one more bit before I get into that. It would be, um, in addition to this, over the course of the 13th century, uh, we have medieval literary theory itself being developed 
they're developing precise understandings of these terms. So we're talking about authorial intent of author and authority. Um, they're beginning to uh, contemplate these ideas. And so an octor uh, was more than a writer in their conception. Uh, it was someone to be trusted and worthy to be heard. So not just a pen, a hand writing things on the page, but someone who is bringing a message that uh, ought to be dealt with. Um, we also have auctoritas, which communicated that something was regarded as authoritative and worth belief because of its truthfulness. Um, and so applied to Scripture, the biblical authors were approached as those whose writing supremely held intrinsic auctoritas, conveyed at the level of the literal sense. So now we're getting closer to what their conception of authority is, where it's found in the literal sense, and how they are trying to arrive at that literal sense of the text. Um, and uh, also the, the range at which the literal sense can be understood for um, spiritual theological meaning uh, as well. So this comes to a head a little bit and really sets the stage this is the the pregame, I guess, for the Reformation, where we have the literal sense stuff being dealt with while papal infallibility is being propped up. So I imagine most of us are not Catholic, uh, but this is a, a doctrine to this day held by the Catholic Church that I think is on very faulty ground, and I would not be the one, not want to be the one who has to try to defend papal infallibility with the current pope over against even two popes ago. Um, incredibly divergent worldviews. Some would say incoherent uh, when put together, and yet that is the, the task of someone wanting to prop this up. But so if you're an observer of church history, um, uh, we actually don't see uh, the Catholic doctrine of papal infallibility receive an official declaration until way later, 1870. Um, however, it began all the way back at this point where they have, um, we have increasing uh, disputes about the proper relationship between the authority of Scripture and the church's teaching on ecclesiastical or ecclesial matters. Um, and through these conflicts, uh, we see tradition playing a, a very deliberate role uh, in the discernment of, the, of Christian truth and practices seeking, seeking to cohere with biblical teaching. And... Um, but it's during this period we see a turn, a, a redefinition, or a changed understanding of what tradition means. So in the last time I was with you, we were talking about what is tradition, and largely that is the tradition of the apostles as passed on through um, the early church fathers. And up until this point, 
the tradition of the church would be a reverence, a respect for the writings of the early church fathers. However, um, rather than faithfulness to tradition as this exercise of like receptive learning from the patristic heritage, in the late Middle Ages, tradition uh, changed into the establishment of authoritative doctrinal positions and ecclesial practices to the point that tradition no longer represented a person's disposition towards the patristics, but instead tradition became what one accepts in submission to religious authority. Um, this is the, the big turn. And so one of these debates was the question of papal infallibility. Uh, can the Pope err? Can he be wrong? And uh, by the 14th century, we have the literal sense um, going on uh, this complex development we've looked at for a while this evening um, so that uh, it might extend to spiritual and mystical senses, trying to discern human authorship and communication of divine meaning. And so to determine, to determine uh, the God-revealed truth of Scripture, um, extra-biblical tradition provided numerous sources to enlist for theological determinations. So we have the writings of the fathers, we have early canons, we have other papal decrees, um, all that were being uh, cited. And so uh, we have, let's uh, make sure I'm, I'm coming down to the wire on this. Um, <coughs> pardon me. Uh, let me get into this more briefly than I was going to. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Let me just, I'll just offer some things. We won't get into this much, but uh, the Franciscans were largely uh, engaged in the defense of papal uh, infallibility during this time. And um, they remained at the center of the debate specifically, actually, uh, concerning papal office and its authority during the late Middle Ages. And they maintained that the papacy had sanctioned the rights and privileges um, uh, for their medicant order and a uh, life of Christian poverty and all of this stuff being decreed by this Pope, uh, Pope Nicholas III. Um, and in an attempt uh, to protect against, like, retraction of their rule by a false pope, um, Peter John Olivi became an early advocate for the doctrine of papal infallibility. And so he took the passages, uh, the passage in Matthew um, where Jesus is talking to Peter about, you know, on this rock I will build my church, which they take to mean the that's the institution of Peter as the first pope. Um, they understand Christ's words addressing directly to Peter with the promise that his faith would never fail in Luke 22 to then mean that he's, Christ has already established the one true church and he cannot err in matters of truth um, and uh, matters of truth essential for salvation. So combining that on this rock I'll build my church and that faith would never fail, these, these two uh, different contexts, 
they take that to be a firm defense that if error, any doctrinal error in any way were possible, the church would be emptied of all authority uh, concerning the faith to be believed. And so uh, not just the faith, but also the papal office in succession from Peter. Um, they, Because this faith won't fail, and on this rock I'll build my church, that the office of the keys of uh, the universal church, um, God would never... Um, would never have given the fullness of his power to someone responsible for citing matters of Christian faith and truth and divine law. Uh, he would never have done so if they could err. And they claim he has done so, so he can't err. That's essentially the argument, the formulation of that argument. So you could probably see that uh, it'd be very easy for a religious leader, especially one who would be of a growing group of people, a larger organization, if the the dogmatics are thus that they are incapable of error and impeachable in all decisions, um, that could probably be abused pretty well. And uh, we see that in history. And so what we have here is uh, the walls are being erected <laughs> that Martin Luther would seek to tear down uh, right away as papal infallibility. They are unimpeachable on matters of faith unto salvation. And we know the first bit from Martin Luther to come will be his information on salvation, trying to get to the literal meaning, using original languages that are now available to them, all leading towards this confrontation um, of the Reformation. So with the last two minutes, I'll uh, throw four, I guess, exhortations that are here. Is uh, First, the Middle Ages can teach us how to appreciate and read the Bible as a book. So a lot of the richness of Scripture is, to me, in its literary brilliance. And uh, it is a meaningful and uh, edifying endeavor to view it as such, all for the purposes of arriving at uh, greater theological meaning and the authorial intent of our God. Second, um, current trends of our day uh, show a renewed interest in uh, the history of interpretation and the theological uh, interpretation of Scripture as well as the use of tradition for theological retrieval. There are lots of discussions about what's the authority of now a longer, uh, a greater host of what we could say are our early church fathers to us now, as later we get in history of many, many theological things being written. Uh, what is the weight of them over against the scriptures themselves and so forth. Third, um, we see an interesting coexistence of these different uh, parachurch things, I guess. I don't know if it's a, I don't know if it's a good ver- like word for that. But we'll see ecclesial bodies. We'll see monastic groups and uh, universities devoting themselves all to um, interrelated disciplines, all for the, the betterment, I think, of Christendom in general. And lastly, um, this is uh, a, a warning we can heed from this period is to not delve for the sake of whatever our proclivities may be, 
into similar argumentations that would, I say, lower the authority of the literal meaning of Scripture to derive at our ecclesial uh, uh, beliefs, our ecclesial practices, um, not to overweigh um, that version of tradition, a, uh, a dogmatism that uh, is less supported by the literal meaning of the, of the text um, for the sake of our uh, time, whatever our goal may be. But instead, we continued to think carefully, as they were seeking to do, many of them, about the, our central commitments to the sufficiency of Scripture, um, the authority of Scripture, so that we can uh, properly relate a, our theological method, um, especially as it pertains to how we might answer like enduring questions of what makes a given doctrine or position a biblical position. Um, but yeah, so I used every bit of that <laughs> uh, to get through that. I didn't expect the, this one to be as as long as the other one, but I feel like this one is less uh, convoluted. Well, it's more convoluted, but it's a little clearer to grasp the tent poles, I think, of the development of some of these things. So any questions or clarification uh, now that we've arrived? No? Okay. All right. Well, uh, if you would, uh, pray with me and we can uh, be dismissed. Father, uh, we come here as your people, just thankful to, uh, to you that um, you've drawn us to yourself and you've drawn us to one another all by uh, your spirit. I pray that as we continue to study your work in the past, your work through uh, your people seeking to understand you better, um, that we would grow in our love for uh, seeking you in your word, um, that we would continue to tether our hearts uh, to your truth, and uh, that we would continue humbly seeking what you have to say on all matters um, in our lives, uh, and in our church, and in our city, in our country, in our world. Um, and that anything that would come against the knowledge of Christ that we would reject anything that would push us towards that, that we would receive gladly. Uh, continue to uh, illumine us by your Spirit, that we may understand you, love you all the more, and continue to spur us on to love one another and do good works in your name. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.